Welcome back. Welcome to another episode of the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. I am your host, Andrew, for America. Uh, and boy, I'm excited. I'm excited to do this, this podcast today. This, uh, this might be one of my masterpieces. This might be one of my, um, you know, Maybe one of my favorites I've done so far. I don't know. We'll see how good of a job I do. Um, so yeah, welcome in, guys. It's the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. I am Andrew for America. And uh, last uh, episode, I told you guys about uh, how, in the beginning of that podcast, how I had just listened to my friend Sam Winchester's uh, podcast, According to Sam, episode 83. And... Uh, some of the stuff I talked about at the beginning of last episode, I started thinking about after listening to his episode 83. And uh, a few of his podcasts I've kind of wanted to do offshoots of. So um, <clears throat> today, uh, I-, I want to urge you guys to go listen to According to Sam, uh, episode 63, which is entitled The Bonesman. And... The Bonesman is from, you know, the phrase Skull and Bones, which is a secret society, I think, at Yale University or, um, yeah, I think it's Yale. And, you know, Bush, John Kerry, um, amongst many others, uh, are, were our members. Um, Sam will tell you the story about how, um, you know, the story about how John Kerry, when he ran for president against, uh, against Bush, how, um, he pretty much had the election won, uh, and his people were telling him that he had the election won, but then he conceded, uh, you know, so that, just like the revolving door people, you know, the big club will always win. They will they, they will control both sides. You know, you think you're voting Democrat or Republican as if it's going to make a difference. <laughs> nope. Two sides of the same coin, people. Doesn't matter if you get heads or tails, it's still the same quarter. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so <clears throat> today, um, I'm going to tell you guys a story. Uh, I'm going to read some excerpts out of a book, uh, and I'm going to prove that something that is... Uh, publicly considered a conspiracy theory is not that and is in fact absolutely true and we have evidence that proves it um my friend sam winchester has uh does a podcast on this so this this what i'm what i'm going to talk about today comes directly um out of my thought process after i listened to sam's podcast uh, number 63, uh, The Bonesman. Uh, he talks about skull and bones. He talks about secret societies. He And he tells you the story of Cecil Rhodes. And if you guys don't know who Cecil Rhodes is, 
Uh, the Rhodes Scholarship was named after him. The country in Africa, Rhodesia, was named after him. He was, uh, I think he was an Englishman that was, you know, trying to create, uh, you know, the British, uh, he wanted the British crown to rule the world. And he took over a lot of countries in Africa, and he is, um, you know, this as the story goes, uh, Sam will tell you in episode 63 of uh, According to Sam, he, uh, you know, he tells the story of how uh, Cecil Rhodes, when he died, he had uh, a few wills, and he had a lot of money. And allegedly in these wills, he detailed how he wanted to create secret societies that would carry on the tradition that he had spent his life trying to to uh, accomplish. Uh, he was trying to create a new world. Uh, you know, and... Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of information. Go look up Cecil Rhodes and look at his history and look at who he was and what he did. That's where the story begins, and um, also in that book, uh, there is a conversation about uh, the book Tragedy and Hope. Tragedy and Hope uh, was written by a Georgetown professor named Carol Quigley. Uh, Bill Clinton is famous for uh, recognizing Carol Quigley uh, in a speech that he gave a few years back, uh, said, called him a mentor, uh, said that uh, he learned everything, you know, whatever, um, about, uh, you know, the two things that uh, I learned from him, he said, is uh, we have to actually live our morals and uh, do the work of creating uh, a better new world and um, you know, something along the lines of it's our moral responsibility to do so. So Bill Clinton's a big fan of Carol Quigley, and Carol Quigley uh, tells the story about Cecil Rhodes, uh, the British Empire, all the way through all the wars and um, the messed up stuff he did in Africa, uh, the wanting to create secret societies to carry on his tradition. Uh, he was a white supremacist or an Anglo-Saxon uh you know, he want he favored white Anglo Saxons and he thought that, that they were I think he thought that they were like the master race, kinda like what Hitler thought. So that's a part of the story. Um and then, you know, he's gonna tell you about how Georgetown University, Sam Winchester, is gonna tell you in his podcast about how Georgetown University is one of the Jesuit schools. And some of the stuff that they teach at these schools, you know, only a certain select part of society gets to learn this stuff. This stuff isn't being taught in your public school. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. No, you have to go buy the books of the guys that and the gals that wrote this stuff and t taught this stuff. This is the stuff you're, no one's going to tell you about on the mainstream media. So that's why I'm here. I'm going to tell you about it today. Um, so Carol Quigley uh, taught at Georgetown. One of his students was George Clinton, or was, I did it again, was Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton is a big fan of Carol Quigley. So Carol Quigley wrote this book, Tragedy and Hope. And it is a contro controversial book because um, uh, as the story goes, after he wrote a lot of stuff and, and blew the whistle on the plans of this, this big club I've been talking about, um, they somebody bought out the the publishing house and eliminated the um the plates 
the metal plates that the book was printed on. So, the, you know, it's nearly impossible to, f- to know now, today, what the beginning of Tragedy and Hope, you know, was talking about. That was by design. Somebody did that on purpose. Um, so here we go. Uh, some of the things Carol Quigley talks about in, his bu- in this book is he talks about the left-right paradigm and how the tradition of these secret society type people the big club, um, you know, they can, they, they talked about how the left-right paradigm should be used uh, as everything I've been telling you guys about, just a, a, a system of control, give you the idea that you have freedom of choice between the two when really both of the parties are exactly the same. And these people are the ones that talked about it, that it should be the same. So that they can eliminate the quote-unquote rascals that ever, uh, you know, rise up in a populist movement who disagree with the big club and, and you know, these world, new world order type people. So they talked about everything I'm telling you about in, in, in this book. It's, this is not conspiracy theory, people. You can look this stuff up. It is out there, okay? Um... So, yeah, they pretty much Cecil Rhodes passed down through uh, his, I think his, Cecil Rhodes actually had a mentor who was also a professor. His name was John Ruskin. And John Ruskin talked about, I guess, I guess the story goes, he read Plato's Republic uh, every day. And he thought that, like Plato said in the Republic, that he didn't think democracy was going to pan out and that they needed an intellectual elite that would rule the world. All these people have been talking about this passed down through the generations. It's out there. You guys can go find this stuff, okay? So the long short of what I'm trying to tell you is go listen to, according to Sam, episode 63 on The Bonesman when he tells you the story about all these people. Cecil Rhodes, Carol Quigley, uh, Bill Clinton, um, and I, I mean amongst many, many others, and I'm going to tell you guys about it. Um, you know, he talks about how you know, this club's been funding both sides of the wars ever since World War One, pretty much. Um, I mean, it's crazy. Like, this plan is just, it's <laughs> the same thing has been happening throughout history. There's nothing new in this world except the history you do not know. I continue to tell you people that because that's literally all of the answers that you uh, are seeking about what is going on in this world today can be found in History books, people. Go read this stuff. Okay? Um, you know, both, yeah, this club's been funding both sides of every war. I mean, they, they, you know, remember I was telling you guys about the John Perkins book about how he'd go around the world as an economic hitman and try to get uh, these countries to take on debt, structural adjustment loans at interest, so that they can make that money, that sweet money, that, that you know, that comeback, <laughs> you know. And, you know, and then he tells a story about how after uh, Hitler fell and they started printing money, which inflated the currency. And then they came in and took over the currency. The United States helped stabilize it by the Dawes plan, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, go listen to Sam's podcast and he's going to set up in that podcast uh, what I'm going to continue talking about today. Um, I'm going to take a break, and when I come back, we are going to read some excerpts from the book Tragedy and Hope 
by Carol Quigley because I have been hearing these stories for so long. And when Sam put it all together in his podcast, I was like, I have got to go buy this book. And I have located the unicorn, people. I have located factual evidence, proof that the claims that I am making in this podcast are not conspiracy theory and are objective truth. I will be right back. Okay, welcome back. So here we go. I'm about to plead my case. Okay, here we go. The first thing I want to tell you guys about uh, in Tragedy and Hope is uh, in the, one of the first things Carol Quigley, Quigley says in the preface of this book. This, in my opinion, I mean, this book is like over a thousand pages. I think there's like 1,300 plus pages. This is one of the thickest books I've ever seen. I mean, it reminds me of War and Peace. It is, there's no way I'm going to read this entire book. Um, but I did take some time to go through and find the key phrases that are going to support my argument today. And the mo- before I even get to the actual bulk of it, this is the most important line that summarizes where Carol Quigley's head is. And he unwittingly, or maybe wittingly, tells you people what I have been trying to get through your heads, what Sam Winchester has been trying to get through your heads, and what people like us have been trying to get through your heads for quite some time. So please sit down, grab a beverage, and just listen to what I'm about to tell you. Carol Quigley says in his preface, I quote, Much of my adult life has been devoted to training undergraduates in techniques of historical analysis, which will help them to free their understanding of history from the accepted categories and cognitive classifications of the society in which we live, since these however necessary they may be for our processes of thought and for the concepts and symbols needed for us to communicate about reality, nevertheless do often serve as barriers which shield us from recognition of the underlying realities themselves. I'm going to read that one more time because I might have left a little part out. And I want you guys to pay very, very close attention to what he is saying. Much of my adult life has been devoted to training undergraduates in techniques of historical analysis, which will help them to free their understanding of history from the accepted categories and cognitive classifications of the society in which we live. Since these, however necessary they may be for our processes of thought and for the concepts and symbols needed for us to communicate about reality, nevertheless do often serve as barriers which shield us from recognition of the underlying realities themselves. 
that is point one of my case. Carol Quigley just told you that there's a history that they teach in those lesser schools. And then there's the reality of the history that we teach here in the Jesuit schools. Much of my adult life has been devoted to training undergraduates in techniques of historical analysis, which will help them to free their understanding of history. Why do they need to free their understanding of history? Why? Because it's bullshit, people. Since these, however necessary they may be for our processes of thought and for the concepts and symbols needed for us to communicate about reality, meaning (laughs) the show... Remember when I talked about the last episode? I I talked about there's the show and then there's the reality. There's the show that you're supposed to know and believe that you get from the big five major media corporations. And then there's the reality, what I'm trying to tell you and what Sam Winchester's trying to tell you in our podcasts. Because these ideas and, uh, you know, this, this, these barriers rather, you know, these, these, um, Man, I'm butchering this. Hold on. Are they're necessary, however necessary they may be for our processes of thought and for the concepts and symbols needed for us to communicate about reality. Nevertheless, these do often serve as barriers which shield us from recognition, from recognizing, from understanding the underlying realities themselves. Okay, in the preface, this is the this is in the third. No, I'm sorry. This is in the second paragraph of the preface, the beginning of this book. And he's already telling you that it has been his job to teach real reality and real history instead of that peasant record of history that they teach in the public schools. Okay. That's point one. All right. The next point I'm going to read talks about the plan to get everybody onto some type of agreed upon paper currency because gold was just too heavy to carry around all the time. And you know, when you're a robber bear, and I suppose you got a lot of gold, you know, and you don't want to carry it around. So you got to develop some system of currency, right? And credit. So here we go. This is going to be kind of a long part, but I just want you to think about this. I'm probably not going to talk about it afterwards. I just want you to read this or to listen to this rather while I read it. Credit had been known to the Italians and the Netherlands long before it became one of the instruments of English world supremacy. Nevertheless, the founding of the Bank of England by William Patterson and his friends in 19, I'm sorry, in 1694 is one of the great dates in world history. For generations, men had sought to avoid the one drawback of gold, its heaviness, by using pieces of paper to represent specific pieces of gold. Today, we call such pieces of paper gold certificates. Such a certificate entitles its bearer to exchange it for its piece of gold in on demand. But in view of the convenience of paper, 
Only a small fraction of certificate holders ever did make such demands. It early became clear that gold need be held on hand only to the amount needed to cover the fraction of certificates likely to be presented for payment. Accordingly, the rest of the gold could be used for business purposes or what amounts to the same thing, a volume of certificates could be issued greater than the volume of gold reserved for payment of demands against this. Such an excess volume of paper claims against reserves we now call bank notes. Okay, so right there, there's a grift right there. Not all the people that have access turn them in for whatever reason. And so they're making money off that comeback right there. Okay. In effect, this creation of paper claims greater than the reserves available means that bankers were creating money out of nothing. Fiat currency. The same thing could be done in another way. Not by note issuing banks, but by deposit banks. Deposit bankers discovered that orders and checks drawn against deposits by depositors and given to the third persons were often not cashed by the latter, but were deposited to their own accounts. Thus, there were no actual movements of funds and payments were made simply by bookkeeping transactions on the accounts. Accordingly, it was necessary for the banker to keep on hand an actual money, gold certificates and notes, no more than the fraction of deposits likely to be drawn upon and cashed. The rest could be used for loans. And if these loans were made by creating a deposit for the borrower, who in turn would draw checks upon it rather than withdraw it in money, such quote-unquote created deposits or loans could also be covered adequately by retaining reserves to only a fraction of their value. Such created deposits also were a creation of money out of nothing. Although bankers usually refused to express their actions, either note issuing or deposit lending in these terms. William Patterson, however, on obtaining the charter of the Bank of England in 1694 to use the monies he had won from privateering, said, quote, The bank hath benefit of interest on all monies which it creates out of nothing. This was repeated by Sir Edward Holden, founder of the Midland Bank, December 18th. 1907 and is of course generally admitted today people this is point two of my case history shows us there was a concerted effort to get currency under the control of a small group of wealthy bankers financiers and world planners Okay, so, moving on. Uh, where was I at? Okay, so in a previous episode, I talked about the Rothschild family. A lot of people like talking about any mention of their name being conspiracy theory, right? Ooh, con- you're, you're talking about some weird bankers that are trying to take over the world. You're a conspiracy theorist, right? 
Okay, okay. Is that what you feel? Is that what you think? Okay, well, if that's what you think and that's what you feel, allow me to enlighten you on point three. The merchant bankers of London had already at hand in 1810 through 1850 the stock exchange, the Bank of England, and the London money market when the needs of advancing industrialism called all of these into the industrial world, which they had hitherto ignored. In time, they brought into their financial network the provincial banking centers organized as commercial banks and savings banks, as well as insurance companies, to form all of these into a single financial system on an international scale, which manipulated the quantity and flow of money so that they were able to influence if not control, governments on one side and industries on the other. The men who did this, looking backward toward the period of dynastic monarchy in which they had their own roots, aspired to establish dynasties of international bankers and were at least as successful as at this as were many of the dynastic political rulers. The greatest of these dynasties, of course, were the descendants of Mayor Amschel Rothschild, who lived from 1743 to 1812. F Rothschild of Frankfurt whose male descendants for at least two generations generally married first cousins or even nieces. So that's where the conspiracy theory of the intermarrying and the keeping the bloodline pure begin. Rothschild's five sons established at branches in Vienna, London, Naples, Paris, as well as Frankfurt, and cooperated together in ways which other international banking dynasties copied but rarely excelled at. Amschel Rothschild, people, I told you in a previous episode, is famous for saying, give me control of a nation's currency, and I care not who makes the laws. In concentrating, as we must, on the financial or economic activities of international bankers, we must not totally ignore their other attributes. They were especially in later generations cosmopolitan rather than nationalistic. They were a constant, if weakening, influence for peace. A pattern established in 1830 and 1840 when the Rothschilds threw their whole tremendous influence successfully against European wars. Meaning there were fu uh, financing, funding, bet in the farm, trying to get an agenda accomplished in place. They were usually highly civilized, cultured gentlemen, patrons of education and of the arts, so that today, colleges, professors, opera companies, uh, symphonies, libraries, and museum collections still reflect their munificence. For these purposes, they set a pattern of endowed foundations which still surround us today. 
Okay? Behind every great fortune is a great crime. And the biggest criminals in the world also seem to be the biggest philanthropists. Hmm. Wonder why that is, huh? All right. Here's my favorite part of point three of my case I'm trying to make to you today. And I'm going to name some names. And this is part of my thesis. The names of some of these banking families are familiar to all of us and should be more so. Yes, they should. They include Baring, Lazard, Erlinger, Warburg, Schroeder, Seligman, The Spires, Mirabad, Malay, Fault, and above all, Rothschild and Morgan. You know who Morgan is, people? You ever heard of J.P. Morgan? Even after these banking families became fully involved in domestic industry by the emergence of financial capitalism, they remained different from ordinary bankers in distinctive ways. In five distinctive ways. Please listen up. Number one, they were cosmopolitan and international. Number two, they were close to governments and were particularly concerned with questions of government debts, including foreign government debts, even in areas which seemed at first glance poor risks like Egypt, Persia, the Ottoman Empire and Turkey, Imperial China, and Latin America. Three, their interests were almost exclusively in bonds and very rarely in goods. Since they admired liquidity and regarded commitments in commodities or even real estate as the first step toward bankruptcy. They want to create money out of nothing. It's not real. It's fiat currency. And they want to trade in... Remember when I told you the Ayn Rand quote about graft and pull? This is graft and pull. This is what graft and pull rather than work means. Their interests were almost exclusively in bonds and very rarely in goods. Since they admired liquidity and regarded commitments, commitments, the keyword being commitments, in commodities or even real estate as the first step toward bankruptcy. Wow. Four, they were accordingly fanatical devotees of deflation which they called sound money from its close associations with high interest rates and uh, oops yeah uh, sound interest rates let me read that part again i think i messed up uh the, okay so point four they were accordingly fanatical devotees of deflation which they called sound money from its close associations with high interest rates and high value of money and of the gold standard which in their eyes symbolized and ensured these values And point five, they were almost equally devoted to secrecy and the secret use of financial influence in political life. These bankers came to be called the international bankers, or I call how I call them in in um, in uh, episode two the internationalists, and more particularly, were known as merchant bankers in England private bankers in France, investment bankers in the United States. And in all countries, they carried on various kinds of banking and exchange activities. 
but everywhere they were sharply distinguishable from other more obvious kinds of banks, such as savings banks and commercial banks. Okay, so uh, point three, the Rothschild family and the Rothschild dynasty is real and is not a conspiracy theory. Okay, moving on. Point four, I believe. Naturally, the influence of bankers over governments during the age of financial capitalism, roughly 1850 through 1931, was something about which anyone, I'm sorry, was not something about which anyone talked freely. No one was out there in the streets talking about the influence of bankers over the government. And you know what? They're not doing it really today in the public domain, are they? Hmm, gee, wonder why. So yeah, was not uh, during the during the age of financial capitalism uh, was not something about which anyone talked freely, but it has been admitted frequently enough by those on the inside, especially in England. In 1852, Gladstone, Chancellor of XK Care, I probably butchered that, declared, "quote The hinge of the whole situation was this: the government itself was not to be a substantive power in matters of finance." but was to leave the money power supreme and unquestioned. On September 26, 1921, the Financial Times wrote, quote, Half a dozen men at the top of the big five banks would upset the whole fabric of government finance by refraining from renewing treasury bills. In 1924, Sir Drummond Fraser, vice president of the Institute of Bankers, stated, quote, The governor of the Bank of England must be the autocrat who dictates the terms upon which alone the government can obtain borrowed money, unquote. Okay, and here, this part coming up here is one of the most uh, talked about excerpts of this book so here we go take a sip listen up hope you're enjoying this stuff i'm about midway through pleading my case to you people okay in addition to their power over government based on government financing and personal influence bankers could steer governments in ways they wish them to go by other pressures since most government officials felt ignorant of finance. They sought advice from bankers whom they considered to be experts in the field. Hmm. The history of the last century shows, as we shall see later, that the, advi the advice given to governments by bankers, like the advice they gave to the industrialists, was consistently good for bankers, but was often disastrous for governments, businessmen, and the people in general. Such advice could be enforced, if necessary, by manipulation of exchanges, gold flows, discount rates, and even levels of business activity. Thus, J.P. Morgan dominated Cleveland's second administration of gold withdrawals in 1936 through 1938. French foreign exchange manipulators paralyzed the popular front governments. As we shall see, the powers of these international bankers reached their peak 
in the last decade of their supremacy, 1919 through 1931, between the First and Second World War, when Montague Norman and J.P. Morgan nominated not only the financial world, but international relations and other matters as well. Sorry. When Montague Norman and J.P. Morgan dominated not only the financial world, but international relations and other matters as well. What did they dominate? The financial world and international relations. On November 11th, 1927, the Wall Street Journal called Mr. Norman, quote, the currency dictator of Europe, unquote. This was admitted by Mr. Norman himself before the court of the bank uh, on uh, March 21st, 1930, and before the Macmillan Committee of the House of Commons five days later. On one occasion, just before international financial capitalism ran at full speed on the rocks, which sank it. Mr. Norman is reported to have said, quote, I hold the hegemony of the entire world, unquote. Mm-hmm. You still with me, people? We're almost done. We're almost there. Modifications of productive and commercial organization and of financial practices made it almost impossible after 1919 to restore the financial system of 1914. Yet this is what was attempted. Instead of seeking to set up a new financial organization adapted to the modified economic organization, bankers and politicians insisted that the old pre-war system should be restored. These efforts were concentrated in a determination to restore the gold standard as it had existed in 1914. And this next part, I think I said the last part I read to you was the most quoted, the most talked about excerpt of this book. I was incorrect. This is the part I was talking about. If you haven't listened to anything I've said to you uh, about my first four points as of yet, this is the five, the fifth and final, and I'm going to outro with just a little bit more, and I'm going to rest my case. Here we go. In addition to these pragmatic goals, the powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create, listen up, a world system of financial control in private hands able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion. If you don't know what feudalism and what the feudal lords were, you stay the F off of your Facebook comment sections when people are talking about this stuff. Feudalist fashion means dictatorship, totalitarian rule. The rich and powerful allow you poor slave peasants to subsist off of their land. Uh, and we are going to tax your labor in order to give you that opportunity. That's feudalism. Okay? This system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert. 
by secret agreements arrived at in frequent private meetings and conferences. Do I still sound like a conspiracy theorist to you people? This is straight out of Tragedy and Hope by Carol Quigley, who is a professor at Georgetown, or was. This is page 324, people. I dare you. Keep calling me a conspiracy theorist, and I will keep shoving factual evidence down your throats. The apex of the system was to be the bank for international settlements in Basel, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world's central banks, which were themselves private corporations. Each central bank, in the hands of men like Montague Norman of the Bank of England, Benjamin Strong of the New York Federal Reserve, Charles Rist of the Bank of France, and Hjalmar Schacht of the Reichsbank, sought to dominate its government by its ability to control treasury loans, to manipulate foreign exchanges, to influence the level of economic activity in a country, and to influence cooperative politicians by subsequent economic rewards in the business world also known as the revolving door also known as crony capitalism Um, yeah, so, okay, here we go. Uh, this is the last part I wanted to read to you guys. And, um, yeah, this part, uh, is, uh, my outro for my fifth and final point. Now I'm gonna bring everything I just told you about this financial elite that want private control in the hands of a very few so that they can control the world, yada, yada, yada. Uh, here we go. Behind this unfortunate situation lies another more profound relationship, which influences matters much broader than the Far East policy. It involves the organization of tax-exempt fortunes of international financiers into foundations to be used for educational, scientific, and other public purposes. I don't know, maybe like the Bill Gates Foundation. Sixty or more years ago, public life in the West was dominated by the influence of Wall Street. This term has nothing to do with its use by the communists to mean monopolistic industrialism. But on the contrary, refers to international financial capitalism deeply involved in the gold standard, foreign exchange fluctuations, floating of fixed interest securities, and to a lesser extent, flotation of industrial shares for stock exchange markets. This group, which in the United States was completely dominated by J.P. Morgan and company from the 1880s to the 1930s, was cosmopolitan, Anglophile, which is a pretty word for saying, uh, you know, uh, they preferred white people, I, I, I believe is what that means. Uh, internationalists, Ivy League, Eastern Seaboard, High Episcopalian, and European Culture Conscious. Uh, you might call these people the Rockefeller Republicans uh, in later years. Okay, but this is the group, people. This is the Goldman Sachs today. This is the big club. I'm talking to you about the big club, okay? Their connection with the Ivy League colleges rested 
on the fact that the large endowments of these institutions required constant consultation from the financiers of Wall Street or its lesser branches on State Street, Boston, and elsewhere, and was reflected in the fact that these endowments, even in 1930, were largely in bonds rather than in real estate or common stocks. You know, they they don't, you know, commitments meant bankruptcy to these people. Think about that. They wanted liquidity. They wanted fiat. They wanted not real, but uh, looked upon as real. As a consequence of these influences, as late as the 1930s, J.P. Morgan and his associates were the most significant figures in policymaking at Harvard, Columbia, and to a lesser extent, Yale. While the Whitneys were significant at Yale and the Prudential Insurance Company through Edward D. Duffield dominated Princeton. So this is my point five, people. And my final point, Carol Quigley, author of this book, who is writing these words that I am reading to you right now is telling you here that every decision that was made in the Ivy League schools was made not by the dean and the faculty. It was made by the people running the large endowments. The people who have their names on all of their philanthropic uh, you know, assets. These are the winners of history. These are the people writing your history books, okay? These are the people that are using the media to control your mind. Because of its dominant position in Wall Street, the Morgan firm came also to dominate other Wall Street powers, such as, here's some names you might have heard of, Carnegie, Whitney, Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt, that's uh, the Anderson Cooper, Gloria Vanderbilt uh, dynasty there. Brown Harriman, Harriman meaning Averill Harriman, who is allegedly responsible for planning the JFK assassination. Uh, Or Dylan Reed. Close alliances were made with Rockefeller, Mellon, like Carnegie Mellon, uh, and Duke. Interests, but not nearly so intimate ones with the great industrial powers like DuPont and Ford. A lot of these names, I'm sure, sound familiar to you people. In spite of the great influence of this Wall Street alignment, an influence great enough to merit the name of the American establishment, people. That's why I call the mainstream media establishment news. That's why I call the two parties, Democrats and Republicans, the establishment parties. This is the punk rock theme known as the man, the establishment, the machine. This group could not control the federal government and in consequence had to adjust to a good many government actions thoroughly distasteful to the group. So they had to do some stuff that they didn't really want to do. The chief of these were in taxation law, beginning with the graduated income tax in 1913, but culminating above all in the inheritance tax, of course. Can't pass down all of your take, can you? Got to chip off a little bit for Uncle Sam, right? These tax laws drove the great private fortunes dominated by Wall Street into, listen up, tax-exempt foundations. Like the church. 
which became a major link in the establishment network between Wall Street, the Ivy League, and the federal government. Link. Network. Between Wall Street, Ivy League, federal government. Dean Rusk, Secretary of State after 1961, officially, or I'm sorry, formerly president of the Rockefeller Foundation and Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, is as much a member of this nexus as Alger Hiss, the Dulles Brothers. Uh, Sam Winchester will tell you about the Dulles Brothers in episode 63, The Bonesman, of his podcast, According to Sam. Uh, and then here's some names I'm not really... Oh, I don't know who these people are. Jerome Green, James T. Shotwell, John W. Davis, Elihu Root, and Philip Jessup. All right, I'm done reading to you people. Excerpts from the book Tragedy and Hope by Carol Quigley. I rest my case. I think I pulled it off. I think I pulled it off. What do you guys think? You guys got any questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, feelings, ideas? Feel free to email me at andrewforamerica1984 at gmail.com. You can tell me all about it. Tell me what you think. And honestly, I really hope if you found value in this podcast today, uh, save this podcast. And if you come across anybody in this world that keeps talking about this stuff like it's bullshit conspiracy theory, please, you have my personal permission to play this podcast for them in its entirety. And then tell them to go listen to episodes 1 through 83 of According to Sam by my friend Sam Winchester. And we will surgically lay it out piece by piece, step by step, chronologically. We will show you the door. But you have to have the intellectual curiosity you have to have the desire to walk through it. It has to start inside first. All right. I'm going to have a little sip of coffee. I think I earned it. And when we come back, it's punk rock time. All right, guys. Um, so, yeah, I just uh, just kind of want to go over what, what we've talked about so far today uh, real quick. And... The way that these lyrics theme up with what I'm talking about today is that um, it's very it's it's really disappointing when when you're just trying to help people out and trying to spread knowledge and awareness and give people the ammunition and the tools that they need. Uh, you know, I, I have the best intention of the whole in mind. I'm exercising my reason, talking about this stuff and doing this podcast. And I don't really care anymore if people call me a conspiracy theorist. I, I, I'm, you know, this this podcast is called the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. And anyone that accuses me of not talking about politics, um, all I'm talking about is conspiracy theory. People, you are the useful idiots. I am trying to wake up. You guys just don't get it. You just don't. And I don't know if you ever will. I don't know if you're savable. I don't know. But I, you know, I'm praying that you are. And I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing. And if I can even open up one or two minds uh, and show them the light, then you know what? So be it. But I'm going to read some of these lyrics to you. Reality, people, is what you want to see. It shouldn't make a difference to me. I put my trust in what you had to say, and it didn't make a difference anyway. 
I know you've tried your best, and I'm so glad. Thank you so much. Disappointment is what you've made this. Expectations overrated. Disappointment is what you've made this. My ambition is so deflated. Reality is different for me. My eyes are opened wide enough to see. I've listened to your explanations why. And the more you fail, the harder that I try. A case of mistaken opportunity. I guess I really got it wrong. Identity is insignificant. Or is it everything? Is what he's asking at the end of this song. Trevor Keith. <laughs> Kristen Scott Shiflet. I, I think those are, that's their names. One Brothers and Face to Face, other brothers and Foo Fighters. Those guys, pff, amazing, amazing musicians. There it is, face to face people with Disappointed. And you know, to close today, that's it. I, I am disappointed. I'm, I'm disappointed in what's happening in this world and I'm disappointed in how easy it is to find the truth about what's happening in this world. And I'm most disappointed about how little and how few of you people care. It's kind of a slap in the face to anyone that ever served in the military. It's kind of a slap in the face to anyone that's ever been a police officer, a first responder, anybody that lays their li lives down, lays their lives on the line every day and are willing to lay their life down for you. You know, just maybe a little gratitude, maybe a little intellectual curiosity, maybe be discerning and skeptical enough not to believe every single thing that your TV screen tells you. It's called the idiot box for a reason. This was the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. I hope this one goes down in history and age as well. And if you ever come across anybody that uh, calls this stuff conspiracy theory, tell them, go pick up the book Tragedy and Hope by Georgetown professor Carol Quigley. And <laughs> if you want to read all 1,300 pages, feel free, be my guest. But this stuff is out there, people. And just because your TV and the big club and the establishment want you to believe their storylines and their narratives, that doesn't necessarily mean you should. It's still a free country. Keywords still. And I know ignorance is bliss. I've talked about it before. But people, that bliss clearly has a time limit. Tick-tock. 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 I love you guys. We'll see you next time. <laughs>